Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Melbourne's COVID-19 lockdown has been extended again, so we've pre-recorded this interview over Zoom. Today, my guest is Mark Bell. Uh, He's a member of Smart Recovery Australia and a peer facilitator. And he'll be talking about how the Smart Recovery approach has helped him with his recovery from reliance on alcohol. Uh, So welcome to the show, Mark. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. As you know, our usual format is to talk about what influenced you growing up and when you were exposed to problematic behaviours and when you found recovery. So I guess we'd like to start by giving our listeners an insight into your formative childhood and teenage years, just as a start. Uh, so what was your family like? Oh, look, I had a pretty good family life as, as a youngster growing up in the suburbs. Dad travelled a lot with work. Mum was home a fair bit. So it was a pretty supportive environment, yeah. So do you have any siblings? I do. I have an older sister. So did you live in the same place most of your childhood? Look, I guess we lived in the same house up until I was sort of just about of high school age. And then we moved a little bit closer to the city, sort of from the suburbs, a little bit sort of closer in. Yeah. Yeah. So how would you, you know, describe yourself as a kid? As a kid, I was some, oh, I don't know. I, um, I was a bit of a class clown, always getting to trouble, but I was also sort of full of that sort of insecurity as well growing up. So it was a bit of a paradox, as many, many of us are. Yeah. So what about school? Did you enjoy school? I didn't enjoy school at all, Bill. I went to some great schools and I have some fond memories, which sounds a bit funny, but no, I, I sort of dreaded going to school. Yeah. Why do you think that was? I don't really know. I think I remember once going to camps and stuff and being terrified and just wanting to go home. I didn't like that whole you know, not being at home thing as a kid. I think, I, I don't know what that says, but, and I didn't like having to conform either. Okay. What about friendships then? Did you find it difficult making friends? Throughout my school, I, I generally had just a couple of close friends, not a huge network of friends. And I guess that's the sort of continued throughout my whole life, really. But the friends I had were, were quite close, yeah. Yeah. What about academically? Were you a good student? I had to work at it. I, I was when I applied myself. Yeah, I ended up doing all right. So I ended up sort of finishing high school and then starting a Bachelor of Music. Um, so straight into sort of university. Okay. So interesting music. So did you get involved in any bands or anything? I dabbled in a bit of sort of <laughs> pop music, but my thing was opera by then. So I'd gone to a music high school prior to that. And then yeah, I was focusing on my singing. And that eventually took me off to England for about seven years where I studied at Royal Northern College of Music. Yeah. Oh, okay. 
So being a bit anxious, being away from home, how did going to England <laughs> affect you? There were some terrifying moments, that's for sure. I, it was full of excitement and terror, really, the whole thing. But I found my feet over there eventually and ended up settling into quite a long period of study, really. I did my Bachelor of Music, which I sort of started again because I'd left Sydney. I'd started that at the conservatorium and then I think there was about a year in between decided that I wanted to go to England to study. So, yeah. Yeah. So what about relationships then? Did moving overseas affect your relationships? I guess it did in the sense that I became quite removed from the Australia life. Living that far overseas tends to do that. So I guess there's a bit of a, a lack of continuity there between the friends I had growing up and then the life that became my life over there. And then I did come back like in the summer, which was, I think, our winter. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, <laughs> it always confuses me. It shouldn't. It's the opposite. But yeah, and no, I had quite a big network of friends where I was in Manchester and I was very much sort of into college life over there. Yeah. So when did you first discover alcohol? Oh, very early, really. I mean, uh, it was always around, I guess, in that sense, quite typical sort of Australian sort of alcohol focused with social gatherings and parties and whatnot that mum and dad would put on. And because of my rebellious nature, I, I would always sort of, you know, try to push the envelope with my behaviour from my earliest recollections. So we would always be taking you know, horrible warm bottles of beer I wouldn't touch now and, um, <laughs> and you know, sort of sneaking dad's cigarettes because he used to smoke back in the day. And also a mate of mine had a sort of a dad who was into marijuana as well. So we, we found his supply under the floor. So we were into everything quite early, yeah. So how did that change things for you? Well, it's interesting, but looking back on it, I guess it was quite sort of formative in the sense that I liked the way that allowed me to maybe escape from reality but I also like that identity of being sort of the non-conformer as well I guess as a young as a young teenager especially I remember I shouldn't tell the story but we used to trot down from the conservatorium of music quite early in high school just swap ties so I'd steal my dad's business tie and I'd put that on and of course not wear the school blazer and um Back in the day, I mean, we were what we're talking about, like in the early 90s or mid 90s, they weren't so strict. And me and my weight would just go down to the Forbes Hotel in Sydney, which is shut now. And um, we'd queue up in the dark and we'd shuffle on in. And of course, it was so smoky and dark in those days. You know, we just eventually, I think they turfed us out. But uh, yeah, we got away with blue murder looking back on it. So how old were you then? 16, 17? Or? Mate, I would say pushing 15 I would say um we and it was a, it, it was an enormous adrenaline rush I remember my mate Will and I used to sort of go down the road and and we got other people involved in it too some of the older boys no one no one our age was willing to sort of go along with it because of the the risk factor but I think that was what appealed to us <laughs> uh, it's crazy looking back isn't it mm. yeah haven't thought about that for a long time yeah. Uh, so was that a regular alcohol use though, or just occasional? Oh, look, no, I think there was a little bit of sort of alcohol use at high school, but 
again, I think that was more tied to sort of that sort of rebellious identity as a young teenage man. But no, sort of habitual. Oh, on the weekends, we used to sort of binge drink sometimes, I think. Alcohol was part of my life then, but not in the way I view it as sort of being a, maybe problematic a bit later on. No doubt they were linked. Yeah, okay. So I guess the drinking in UK pubs is uh, pretty well renowned. So did you do any drinking in the pubs? Mate, I was there, well, most days. But at the same time, I had enormous pressure on with my opera studies. So I did try to balance that. But it was, yeah, a huge part of the culture over there. It probably even more so, I think, than Australia culture, that pub scene, as you alluded to, Bill. Yeah. Yeah, it got so dark over there as well. And I remember... So early. Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, it didn't even feel that sort of out of place starting quite early with the open fire in the pub and talking nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. So did that impact your um, your studies? I'd have to say yes, although I ended up excelling. I started off over there as a as a very, very small fish in a big pond and probably because of my nature and wanting to prove that I could succeed. I ended up working quite a lot harder than the average and I had some talent as well. So that was a recipe for success and and ended up being that way. But I guess ultimately after like a six years, I think alcohol and basically problematic behaviors and the way that I dealt with my life was the undoing of that chapter as well. So, or part of it. Yeah. Yeah, so what sort of problematic behaviours did you develop? Well, I think with that sort of lifestyle, it was such an adrenaline rush going on stage and performing these, in the end, quite big operatic roles and going to London and and, and quite often doing multiple roles at the same time in multiple different languages and having the pressure of a lot of things, like obviously just the audience, but then you've got the pressure of the institution, which at the time was paying my tuition and that was a pretty big deal. So I had the pressure of probably being one of the most, I was a very visible student at the time for the, where I was studying. So there was a lot of pressure. And I guess, I guess associated with alcohol was that sort of like, you know, that release. And so that became an unhealthy, I lent on alcohol for that. I think, yeah. Yeah. So did you have any support? over there yeah well I I mean I did but I looking back on it now I sort of feel like I need to give that guy a hug you know because he was he worked so hard and I I just put an enormous amount of pressure on myself and the institution I sound like the royal family not the institution well the the college of music where I was studying you know they did their best to support me but at the same time they were giving me all these opportunities which was great but with opportunity also it had an impact you know And I think I took on too much as a very young person and I didn't, I didn't have the coping mechanisms. Yeah. Mm. So did it affect your relationships? (laughs) My relationships? Well, I mean, look, I had a number of girlfriends when I was studying over in England and I had some significant relationships and I had my heart broken a couple of times. And, but certainly I think getting close to, anyone is difficult when when one becomes reliant on things to regulate ourselves outside substances or 
you know, in my case, it was alcohol um, at that time. It's, it's not necessarily always been that way. There's been other things that I've lent on. But yeah, I think not being able to sort of regulate and I guess take on an appropriate amount of pressure and saying no to stuff as well. Yeah. You're not very available then, are you? Because it's like you're either on and you're, you're doing the, you know, the, the, the big opera or it might be someone else in a big corporate job or you're off. off. Yeah. <laughs> and both are quite unavailable to people. Yeah. 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 Um, so what triggered you to, um, to come back? Well, you know, I had a sort of an existential crisis over there. I remember I had a full scholarship to come back. This is my second year of postgrad. I'd done a first year of postgrad opera studies and I, I just started to sort of sing professionally. And then I just felt this enormous pressure, but the love had gone. I, I, I felt like if I didn't quit it, I'd end up hating it. And so I had a bit of a chat with <laughs> Probably the, the, the oddest chat I've, that this poor guy has ever had, the director of opera studies at this massive institution, I, I said, look, can you give the, the 20 odd thousand pounds back to this benefactor? Because I'm not coming back. And at that time, I, th- I, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I actually thought about going into the coffee business, which I sort of ended up in indirectly later on in my life. But that was sort of, you know, I was just working in coffee shops and bars and that was it. So did that trigger your drinking or did the drinking trigger the <laughs> crisis? I don't know, Bill. It's so long ago now. I'm sure I did drink um, a fit. I remember drinking quite a lot in my last opera, actually, when I was studying, when I was, it was the start of the English summer. And I'm, I think it was probably 2005. That's going back a long way. But, and I was doing uh, the role of Don Magnifico in La Cenerentola, which is a big opera by Rossini, I think. And we were doing an English version for these very rich people out in the countryside. They had, it was all staged in these like real life castles. I, I, it was astonishing. And they had full orchestra and, and you know, every conductors flown in from Italy. And because they didn't want to hear this opera in Italian, that would be terribly wrong in the English countryside. They'd have to look at the translation. So we had to rejig the whole opera with an English translation. But I do remember the wheels falling off in that performance because I was so burnt out from multiple roles mm. and a terrifying performance of the same opera in Italian, um, which we just sort of finished, that, yeah, I was definitely self-soothing in many of the standard ways that are particularly unhelpful, including alcohol. Yeah. yeah. So how did things change when you came back? Yeah, well, I changed careers. I became a chef. I moved to King's Cross and that was a very, very, very sort of booze and drug fueled life. Being an apprentice chef at at a reasonably old age for that industry, I was in my, I was about mid twenties, a bit later. And yeah, just keen to keep up on all fronts. And, And that was probably, that's just before the lockdown laws came across in King's Cross and that was probably like, that was the place to be if you wanted to burn the candle at both ends and the industry to do it in. So, Yeah, I've heard that working in the, the, as a chef, I heard of one guy who could basically be a narcotics user by day and chef by night and he'd earn enough for the next day and he just 
and the boss loved him because he could do, he could pull sort of 18 hours, if you like. Oh, we used to do mad things. I mean, they'd just done it. The, the gazebo uh, was was a building that I think came into its heyday in maybe the 70s, I'm not sure. But it was it's quite an astonishing looking building. It's sort of round in King's Cross and they'd just redone the, the restaurant down below. And yeah, so that's where I cut my teeth in as a professional chef. Right. Okay, well, so we might uh, take a short break there and have some music and some announcements. song was Everything is Great by Alice Skye, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need. Exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving. Authorised work or education if you can't do it from home. Getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors, and if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. 
authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. So, here you are. Too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Mark, and we're talking about recovering with the help of Smart Recovery Australia. So Mark, before the break, we are talking about your chefing career in, in Sydney, as we were talking about that, you know, with a lot of alcohol and drugs available and the, I guess, the hours that chefs work, it's, it's very easy to get into a very unusual lifestyle. So what was it like, particularly in King's Cross, in the, I guess, the food industry and having a lot of time available for yourself? How, how did that pan out for you? Well, you know, the irony was, Bill, I didn't have a lot of time. I was working a lot. And as an apprentice back in those days as well, I think they've cleaned it up a bit and, and many chefs have been sued subsequently. But yeah, we were paid for 40 hours and just had to do obscene working weeks. Some days I think I was there seven days a week. But I managed to organise it. I was living in Kellett Street in the Cross. If, if anyone's from Sydney, they'll, they'll know it. Um, it's pretty notorious. And so we had this little old apartment in Kellett Street. So literally up upstairs from a 24-hour pub. Yeah. Uh, so we'd, we'd sort of, we'd have staffies, as they used to call it, which was meant to be like one drink, but it never was. And then we'd sort of roll into the next place and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. But So what was life like for you then? Was your family concerned with what, what was happening? They were definitely concerned about this sort of sudden and unexplained exit from England and the music world when it seemed to be going so well. So I, I guess they were a bit relieved that I'd at least found a new direction. And I didn't have a lot to do with my, I mean, my family were in Sydney and they were very supportive, but, you know, I don't think they, I certainly wouldn't share the, the stories that we're sharing today as a sort of a matter of course, but they were pretty supportive. And I think they thought it was an odd decision to become a chef, but were supportive. Yeah. Yeah. So what about with your sister? Did you have a good relationship with her? She was in South America at the time, Bill. So, or somewhere, you know, I can't remember what she's traveled so much, but she's now in Queensland, but no, I didn't, didn't really have much of a relationship with her. I was close. I was living with a mate, a very good mate called Ben. Um, so we were close and I was close with the guys from the kitchen as well. We were like inseparable. It's like a, it's like a dysfunctional army and being part of a, a kitchen full of young guys. An incredible time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. So 
What sort of things did you do for pleasure then if you're working all the time? We would literally work ourselves to the ground and drink ourselves silly and, and sometimes take whatever we could get our hands on as well and then roll up and do it all again. It was like this endless cycle with the occasional day off, which was just spent reeling around in bed most of the time <laughs> or apologising for something that I'd had a vague recollection of doing or not doing, I'm not sure. Yeah. So did you have any blackouts? It might not. It hasn't. Blackouts haven't really plagued me, um, thank God, Bill. I, I think there have been some nights in my life that I, I could say perhaps that was a blackout, but no, I wasn't really a blackout drunk. I tended to drink to the point where I couldn't drink anymore. And, and maybe that's, you know, there's, I think there's a few types of people with alcohol and I was the one that could remain reasonably articulate and sort of compass mentis till the end, which wasn't always a good thing because, <laughs> you know, you, you're still you're still dealing with all that alcohol and and or and or drugs and and then the consequences are still pretty bad in your life as we know. So, yeah, no, I wasn't a blackout drunk particularly. No. Did you have a behaviour change? A behaviour change, Bill? Yeah, as in when you when you drank. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I did. I mean, everyone does to a certain extent, don't they? I guess I became more confident and I guess more willing to take risks with, say, girls and sort of go up to them, ask them out or, or just generally carry on with the guys. As it, it, back then in King's Cross, there's been so many different stages in my life, but... Yeah, so, you know, I think I became a more exaggerated version of myself. Um, mm. wasn't always a good thing. Yeah. So when did your lifestyle become a problem? I mean, thinking back to it, Bill, I think it became a problem before England, um, which was sort of like late teens in, in high school, pushing that envelope as a sort of rebellious, let's get wasted type of thing. I guess... When the wheels fell off completely was in England, I guess. And there was, there was no shortage of alcohol over there. So I guess, and then I guess I sort of reinvented myself in King's Cross and a similar thing happened as well. I, I became extremely uncomfortable with my life. I went to a psychiatrist. I was diagnosed with bipolar, which I subsequently disagree with, but there was a whole lot of stuff going on. So yeah, the wheels fell off and then I sort of glued the thing back together and they fell off again. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened after they fell off a second time? You know, I hung on there until the end of that place in King's Cross. And then I can't really remember. I think eventually I, I ended up taking my chefing career off to a place called Barara Waters Inn, which is a little fine dining restaurant in the Hawkesbury, again in New South Wales, and then moved to Brisbane, started a cafe, and so I guess I periodically, I always got my, I guess, my shit together, Bill. Um, but yeah, for one reason or another, things sort of, I guess the wheels falling off is, is the metaphor. Yeah. In AA, they often talk about geographical. So do you see the Hawkesbury and, and Brisbane as geographical? Well, yeah, I guess so. What exactly do you mean by that, Bill? Sorry. Well, uh, geographical. Oh, we, we're just going somewhere else. We'll solve the problem. 
Oh yeah, look, yeah, and oh, and and not just AA. Hey, like um, wherever I go, there I am. I think there was this there's this guy called John Cabot Zinn who who um, anyway, he's very into sort of mindfulness and stuff. But yeah, exactly right. And there's so much wisdom in a lot of what those AA things. So I love it. So when did you reach out for help? Well, in a way, I was reaching out for help back in King's Cross when I sought out that psychiatrist. But I think I downplayed the role that substances had in my life with him. And I guess I really sought out help again in Brisbane, specifically in terms of my alcohol use. I actually, I, I went along to an AA meeting at Brisbane for the first time in my life. So that was interesting. Yeah. So what, what was your first impression? Oh, look, I, I thought it was a bit different. I actually thought they were quite lucky to have each other because um, I felt very isolated, which is, a, which is quite a you know, common casualty of relying on a substance because we become so detached from the people around us. So there was a sense of community there, which was amazing. So, yeah, I, I, I remember going back a, a fair number of times to that particular group and then some subsequent ones. Yeah. Yeah. So how did they help? Did you sort of understand the, the concept of powerlessness and, and the fact that you couldn't control what you were doing, you know, just to understand that it was beyond you at that point? Yeah, look, I was one of those guys that rocked up to AA and I was very uncomfortable with that label of being an alcoholic and actually assuming that identity. So, and they were very good. I don't think anyone pushed that on me there, but the powerlessness thing, and I think it's misunderstood now a lot as well, particularly now I'm in the sort of the smart world a bit in terms of recovery. I think it's, it's misunderstood. At face value, I think it can be quite disempowering, but I don't think it's meant like that. And you probably know more about that from your experience. But yeah, so that sort of scared me, to be honest. And, and I, didn't, I didn't gel with the concepts, but I gelled with the idea of being around others. Yeah. 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 I think that peer support is pretty important. That's right. Yeah. It's funny talking about the, the label of an alcoholic. Yeah. My dad was an alcoholic and my mum wouldn't call him an alcoholic, but she'd call him anything else <laughs> <laughs> because an alcoholic was just too close to the bone. It was just, you know, being married to an alcoholic was just unacceptable. So he couldn't be an alcoholic, but by God, he was, it was pretty terrible. And yeah, I guess the powerlessness one is, you know, it, as a member of the Alan family groups myself, the understanding of the powerlessness is about that you're in a tug of war with the alcoholic. Uh, the the Alan members trying to control the alcoholic and the alcoholics trying to use the alcohol to get control of the life, of his life. And so to me, it, it's seen as a tug of war. And the powerlessness is you just drop the rope and the struggle ends because the alcoholic has no impact on you if you drop the rope. Well, that's a beautiful thing, Bill, but it's so misunderstood when you explain it like that. I think it's a beautiful thing, but I think it may be misunderstood from both within and without the organisation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the other one is the surrender and submission one. That, you know, the, the submission is that I'm down, but by God, I'll be back. Uh, and the surrender one is I'm down and look, I'm not going to fight anymore. I accept that it's not getting me anywhere, so I'll change direction. 
you know what a lot of this stuff makes me think of bill and i love your program for this reason and you I've, I've just discovered it but that i don't think we need to take these opposing views really to get to the essence of of all this stuff and i think sometimes it's interesting because sometimes in the non-12 step sort of movements we sort of pick at this stuff and then we create this sort of I don't know, unnecessarily and, and, and not very informative uh, discourse around this. Because the way you said about dropping the rope, it speaks to, a, I think it's a, such a wonderful metaphor. And I, I'm really into this acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a, is a type of psychology that I think is particularly useful with, with any sort of a, a problematic behavior. Yeah. And it's sort of one of the newer forms of CBT. So it's embraced by SMART as much as anything else is. But that, that, that analogy of, of, of dropping the rope or what we resist persists, it's just I bang on. So I've never thought about it like that. Mm. So I didn't even know that that was linked in with it, but thank you. Yeah, I think the, um, the big thing about you know, 12 step stuff is about the spiritual awakening. And that to me is just a change of attitude sufficient to overcome the effects of the problem. And, um, and the change of attitude isn't that, I go out and change my attitude because I can't change it, but my attitude can be changed. And by being around people who have a, who think differently or act differently, it challenges me to do the same thing. And once one person changes, everybody else around them has got to adjust. And that's the, you know, that's really the, the acceptance is that I can't change them, but my life can change and that can have an effect. And uh, yeah, yeah. So the, the the peer support is really important. So, did you persist with AA? Look, I did for a while, but I think in the end, it re- I when I was attending AA, in a way, I became more conflicted with my alcohol use. And I don't, I'm not saying AA exacerbated it, but I, I think I actually ended up drinking more after a meeting. I'm certainly not blaming on AA, but it was. I think down to my own confusion and inner conflict with all these sort of terms and, and whether or not I wanted to embrace abstinence versus moderation, for instance, and all that sort of stuff. And also wanted to disprove this thesis that, you know, I was sort of an alcoholic as well. So I would test it out. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think a lot of this stuff's common, but, but, you know, I don't, you know, sometimes it's talked about, but it's good to talk about. Yeah. So it also links back to the rebelliousness as well that it's i'm in control yeah so how long did you stay with ai and how long were you away from it mate i think i was probably i was sort of dabbling in ai for roughly a year that coincided about when i sort of was wrapping up my business i sold my half of my business to my business partner and then took off on an old wooden sailing boat and ended up back in sydney so that that was the end of ai i I didn't really explore it in sydney to answer that question yeah yeah. So how long did it take you before you started looking for some other help? Well, interestingly enough, yeah, I, I, I didn't approach SMART. I'd never heard of it. I went to see a psychologist, um, I think, for the first time ever. I'd seen a psychiatrist before. Anyway, I went to see a psychologist and she thought it may be helpful. And I think she had done some f- facilitating work with SMART as well. So she had an interest in it and she thought it would suit my personality. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we might um, have another short break there.
song was The Moon and the Sun, uh, again by Alice Skye, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce The Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. Dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. 
Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. Today I'm talking with Mark and we're talking about recovery through Smart Recovery Australia. So Mark, you were recommended to go to Smart Recovery by a psychologist. How did you view going to another peer support group after AA? Look, I didn't really know what to think and I was surprised that they weren't talking about sort of abstinence. There certainly were some people that were wanting to stop their behavior or had stopped for a while but it wasn't sort of the be all and end all it was more about and there was multiple things discussed as well it wasn't just alcohol so there might be someone talking about gambling or food or other drugs so it was different and I I, again I I latched onto that sense of community which was lacking at that stage yeah yeah so how important do you think it is to have people with different problems in a peer support group it's great, it, but it's also fine if people uh, have the same problem as well, Bill. Like I think in in smart, what's interesting is you so we we sort of look beyond the beha- beyond the substance, as it were, and sort of look towards the behaviour. And so, quite often, people might be doing something different. So one person's thing might be gambling, and someone else's thing might be alcohol. But quite often, their whys are sort of related. Yeah. Why are they doing that? What's the function of that behaviour is a good question. Yeah. There's usually very few people who are only have one problem. Often drinking and gambling or drinking and drug use go together. So it's, it's unusual to have somebody who just has a single problem. So did your drinking and drug use take you towards other things as well? Were you doing other things that were, I guess, socially unacceptable? Oh, mainly just behaving in really defeating ways so quite a lot of isolation so I guess from the outside it didn't look that unacceptable I sort of flew under the radar but my life became extremely small I guess that's the best way I can say it yeah and also relationships suffered like I wasn't in a romantic relationship at the time but just relationships with people around me you know it might be you know my parents or work colleagues or whatever it was at the time So how did SMART start helping you? Well, look, I went along back in the day before COVID. um, There was an actual meeting underneath the bridge, the Harbour Bridge for those Melbourneites. And I guess I just kept turning up and I was challenged around my behaviour in a way that I wasn't really doing myself. So I would go along and sort of be having the same consequences of the behaviour and sort of saying, oh, you know, but this week's going to be different and then someone would ask me well how's that going to happen (laughs) if you're going to do the same thing again or you know not in so many words but that is you know we do we do like to challenge people in 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 the group in a sort of a constructive and empowering way and that was certainly done um with me yeah yeah nothing changes if nothing changes it's um (laughs) something something's got to trigger the the change. So, so what do you think triggered you to start taking your life more seriously? Then, 
Well, look, I decided to take some time off from alcohol, like stop completely. So I'd enrolled in a personal training course and I just said to myself, which was yet another career change. I said to myself, look, I want to finish this thing. And from now until when I finish this course, it was a TAFE course, I'm going to not drink. And I'd, I'd sort of made up my mind in the group. And so there was a certain amount of accountability with that decision and the group as well. Yeah. So uh, I understand in, in SMART, you talk about what you, what you achieved last week and at the end you set targets for next week. So did you find that a constructive way to allow yourself not to overset your goals, if you like, to, to set achievable goals? Look, yeah, I mean, at times seven days felt very daunting. I've got to say, when I was sort of still in the behaviour, still engaging in it on a daily basis and then having, you know, I'll start tomorrow day sort of every other day or every day. But I think it is useful. It just depends where we're at at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, it can be a little bit daunting to think about long periods of time. So I'm now a facilitator as well. So in my groups, I always encourage people, look, if seven days feels too much, it can literally be... What are you doing after the meeting? You know, what are you going to do after this Zoom meeting? Um, if, if, you know, that, that could be reasonable for somebody and could be positive. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the tolerance like within the groups for people who don't change but keep coming back? I think it's, it's pretty high. The interesting thing is that people do change, mm. even the ones that like a hell bent on not changing because a lot of the people that come to smart are actually mandated to, or strongly suggested to by their legal team or something. They've got in trouble with the law. They've got a court date coming up and, and some people are, I think they're called like mandated. Okay. But it is interesting to see the shift in pretty much everyone. I'm not saying that everyone is sort of cured because that by certain, certainly isn't the case, but I think change tends to creep in for most people that sort of hang around, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. So what encouraged you to become a facilitator? Well, look, I was just blown away. You had Josette on this program. I, I listened to it. I, I don't know when she was on, but she was the facilitator and she, she wasn't a peer facilitator. She was employed by Smart, I think. And I just happened to be in her group. I didn't seek her out. She was in my area. And so I was always interested if she wasn't there to sort of help run the group because that's the sort of what happens if the facilitator's not there for some reason then somebody that's been along a few times will sort of say no this is the structure and, and sort of step in and then I think Josette took a step back and I think she rang me actually and I was delighted because it was that lockdown and the gym had shut its doors and I was you know pleased to have something to do. <laughs> yeah so Based on you know, where your recovery was at at that point, how much more did you learn as a facilitator that has helped you? It's ongoing. I, I, every time I do a group, I'm blown away. And I'm, now I've got a co-facilitator, Nick. And so, you know, we're all so different. And the interesting thing about SMART is not only do people have different goals, and, you know, the, one of the most talked about ones is abstinence versus moderation, but there's all sorts of different worldviews, and things that some people think are helpful, other people think are, you know, not really helpful at all. So I find it fascinating. Every week, it's a privilege to be part of that. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the difference with 12-step programs and SMART is, I guess, the spiritual concept. So what's your 
I guess, take on that, having seen both? Bill, I, look, it's, it's a fantastic sort of observation. And the, the sort of longer I'm on this earth, I think it's everything's got a bit of a sort of a spiritual element. So whereas maybe in AA, there's, a, there's sort of like that's more tied up in that. But, you know, we talk a lot now about mindfulness and in, it just in a popular sort of vernacular, we, you know, we're talking about this stuff now, which actually has quite spiritual sort of origins and, and they're not necessarily to do with one particular type of religion, but I find it extremely useful when we're talking about, you know, trying to change ourselves and our behaviours, which is essentially what, what SMART is all about. And so, yeah, I mean, quite often I will go off on a bit of an existential tant. I've got to rein myself in, but not necessarily talking about religion per se or God or anything, but just sort of like, can we notice, even, even psychology does it a bit. Like if we're, if we're noticing a thought, that's quite sort of quite existential, would you say? I don't know. It's quite metaphysical. Yeah. Are we, are we, can we observe ourselves and who are we and all this sort of things? You can go down a rabbit hole, but it can be, yeah, to answer your question, I, I think SMART is what, and I think AA these days as well, isn't it? I mean, for most chapters, I don't think you have to sort of talk about God. Is that right? Yeah, I guess a God of your understanding or um, it's really a, a spiritual concept of your understanding in real terms. AA's steps were, came about in, I think it was 1935. And if you hadn't used the word mindfulness in 1935, people would have laughed at you. <laughs> but if you use prayer and meditation today, people laugh at you the same way. It's, it's just that the, the words have changed, but it's the same thing. It's trying to connect to yourself and, and stop trying to go out there and sort of go inside. It's, yeah. yeah, interesting stuff. So how's your life different today because of SMART? I think it's very different because things took a different trajectory then when when I met up with this smart group down at Kirribilli. I think I began to see change as something that was possible for me. And even now, I, I'm, I'm not a finished product. I mean, this is a life's work, this stuff. And even if we manage to get a grip on a behaviour that's been particularly problematic, we still have all these challenges around life don't we, Bill? I mean, it just keeps rolling on. And so, yeah, it's it's a forever thing. And I think sometimes this idea of recovery is a little bit sort of like oversimplified as well. It's like, you know, in a way, everyone's always in recovery. Yeah. It's not to say we can't get over certain things. Um, yes, but that's my, my take on that, yeah. Yeah, it's a journey. Yeah, it's not a destination. Yeah. So... Do you see yourself now as part of society? Do you think you've come back and you're a part of society or you're still a bit of a rebel out there? <laughs> I'm part of society. Well, it was interesting because after I've, I've got a job now in, in sort of this peer support stuff too. So I'm working in mental health as a peer support worker as well, which is sort of a, a consequence of COVID because I lost my job working in, in the fitness industry. But I do, I feel like I'm more of a, like a participant in life. And I think that's got a lot to do with not leaning on substances. For me personally, it was a lot to do with alcohol, a certain amount of food as well. But yeah, to sort of let yourself open up to the world, I think it's quite, it's quite a vulnerable feeling. So if, if, if we're sort of numb to everything, 
we're not available. Yeah. So I do feel like I'm more available to the world. It's not a, I'm not a finished product, but yeah, I certainly think that I like the word trajectory. I feel like I'm on a better trajectory now. Yeah. Yeah. So what about personal relationships then? Well, that's a bit of a work on Bill. Yeah. So I think that's something that certainly the way that I dealt with my personal life and my feelings through alcohol and other behaviours has sort of left me a little bit cut off from the world. And I did take, as many people have, I think COVID's been really hard um, because it sort of put a stall on me a bit. I feel quite isolated. But at the same time, you know, I'm quite hopeful about the future, I think. And, and again, we've talked about all this sort of mindfulness and stuff, and it sounds a bit cliched. But I mean, the more I feel comfortable with myself, I think the more that I'll be able to receive a relationship when one comes along, you know. Yeah, it's an interesting time in the crazy world. But uh, yeah, I certainly think that my world's become a lot larger now. And so it, I'm, I'm not ruling anything out yet. Yeah. So what about relationship with your family? Has that improved? Most definitely. I, I, look, I think being so invested in changing the way you feel with the substance, in my case, it doesn't leave room for other people in our lives. You know, and I think we talked about it this just before we went on air, didn't we, Bill? But I thought, and you raised it, but it's so true. And I think just by being with yourself and being allowing yourself to be with others as well, I think it's, it's, it's yeah, it's life-changing. Mm. But it's not that easy too, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's not because once we take away whatever we're using, we're left with, reality aren't we and mm. quite often using a substance or, or behaving in a certain way that takes us sort of away from life and reality it does its job until it doesn't so when you take that away you know you're sort of left with the harsh reality of of your life and so I think that's one of the things that I mean I always try to have a bit of like when I'm running a group and I can see someone that maybe just starting off and maybe decided they're not drinking anymore and and they can see that their world is completely it's very small and bleak and there's this expectation that you know we're going to stop doing something and everything will be fine but in reality it's unfortunately we have to build that life back up and I think I'm in the process of doing that and it's not you know watch this space you know I don't know yeah one last question so what is it for you is it abstinence or moderation well, it's been both. And it's an interesting question. I don't think it has to be either or for all people. I think one of the nuanced conversations that doesn't happen in this space enough is that abstinence can be a very good tool to control a substance use or behavior. Yeah, I'm not saying that that is the only way. It certainly isn't. For, for a lot of people, they love their life um, being alcohol-free, for example, and they've got no intention to change it or indeed to prove or disprove the thesis that they can or can't drink moderately. But I think abstinence or being giving yourself some space from a behavior from a, a significant amount of time actually gives you perspective and it does allow for some change. Mm. So yeah, at the moment, yeah, I, I, I had a couple of drinks on Saturday, but that was the first time for a couple of weeks. And it's something that I'm aware of that I don't want to get back into particularly frequently 
but yeah, so it's another, it's a, it's a work in progress. But so to me, it's abstinence. I mean, for me, it's moderation. There you go, mix it up. Yeah, okay. If anybody listening would like to find out more about Smart Recovery Australia, you can visit smartrecoveryaustralia.com.au for details of their meetings and contact info, or you can call them directly on 02-9373-5100. So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Mark from Smart Recovery Australia for joining us and sharing his Smart Recovery experience with us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Bill. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from family disease of alcoholism and be joined by Matteo, a member of our own family groups. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we have another song by Alice Sky called Rija Jalan. Enjoy.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.